Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. An interesting uh had a number of conversations um about this whole idea of suffering that we've been walking through in the letter that peter writes to the church and how how do we contextualize that to where we live because to be completely honest we live in a context a very i'd say pretty narrow sliver of the people of god history where we really don't face suffering or challenge for following and obeying Jesus. Now, I would say that probably we experience a very mild discomfort in moments that that maybe brings out. But, but I think at least for me, and I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, I think those moments of mild discomfort are more because I'm embarrassed to say or do something rather than I'm being attacked for it. And so we kind of live in this place where we're not necessarily suffering for Jesus. We're not suffering because we're obeying the words and the calling and joining in the mission of Jesus. And so it's kind of hard because how, how do we then relate to the scripture that talks about suffering for Christ and even the role that a costly faith can, can have in our lives and how it can develop and deepen us and anchor us in faith. Do we look for opportunities? Do we pursue suffering? And that's not really true of historic Christianity. In fact, early on in the church, Martyrdom was something that people were honored to give their lives in the name of Jesus, but no one chased martyrdom. In fact, the early church saw it as wisdom to hide at times or move out from a place of intense persecution to save their life. That wasn't frowned upon. That was seen as wise. So it wasn't a thing where Martyrdom was pursued. In the same way, I don't think we pursue suffering, but, but what do we do in the context in which we live? And I think this morning as we get into chapter four of 1 Peter, I think it's helpful because Peter wrote a letter to the church, not chapters that you stop and start. And so I think where we left off last week maybe was, was, was really was kind of an unfinished thought. And so... Hopefully today might be a little bit helpful in, in helping us to understand and process this idea of suffering for doing good, suffering in the name of Jesus for obeying Jesus. And I think there's a, a really critical thing here at the very beginning of chapter four because we've just gone through this place where, where Peter has, has said, it is good for you to suffer for doing good if it's in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus suffered for doing good. And that brings us more in line with who Jesus is. So he says in verse one of chapter four, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, referring to his, 
his, his death, his resurrection, and all of that. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I wanna stop and I wanna unpack that because I think this idea of arming ourselves with the same way of thinking is really, really, really important. So arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus thought. So think the way Jesus thinks in your processing of life and what happens and how you live and what you anticipate. And, and so we have to kind of ask the question, okay, so how did Jesus think then? So we need, to, we need to figure out, okay, so realistically, how did he think? We have to back up a step. And I wanna ask this question. Did Jesus, was Jesus' earthly ministry, was Jesus' life on earth in the flesh, was it overall his growing up, what we know, his living, his life, his ministry, all the way to the end, was his life characterized by constant suffering? I mean, think about what Jesus experienced. He grew up in a home with brothers and sisters, fairly normal. They did the normal things that Jewish families do. Uh, we, we, we see in the gospels, Jesus preached. He met with people. For a while, he was incredibly popular. He, he, he had a close group of friends, disciples that he traveled with, that he lived with, that he was in community with. He had some pretty intense arguments with religious leaders. He didn't really have any real run-ins with the law until the end, which was really precipitated by the religious leaders. So thinking to Jesus' life, would you say his life experience was characterized by suffering? I don't think so. I mean, he definitely did suffer. By, by, you know, obviously we all know that he was, he was betrayed, he was arrested, wrongly tried uh, unjustly, he was beaten and he was crucified. So yeah, that's suffering, but that wasn't characteristic of his whole life, was it? And so how did Jesus think about these things? Because when, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Jesus wasn't like, holy cow, I did not see that coming. Like, I was not ready for this. Like, that's not what Jesus reacted. Like, he, he fully, in fact, in fact, the way Jesus talked to his disciples, he said on numerous occasions, he said to them, the son of man must be lifted up. He said, the son of man must be given up, betrayed. He said that he would be handed over into the hands of men to be crucified. The disciples always kind of argued with him about that. But, but those were words he said to them well before he got to that place and well before it ramped up to a place of being able to say, yeah, this is coming. So how do we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus? Arm is a, is a, arming here is a very active term, isn't it? I mean, if you're armed, you are ready for action. Arming is not necessarily aggression, but it is prepared for whatever is coming next. Being armed is you are ready. You are ready to go, it's go time. And whatever happens next, you are in a stance, in a posture of readiness. So arm yourself with the same way of thinking. 
Here's what is interesting about the way Jesus thought. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2 when he says, having the same mind thinking as Jesus Christ who emptied himself, not taking his own divinity as something to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant, even to death on a cross. So that's the behavior that resulted in the mind of Christ, how he thought. Here's, here's how Jesus thought. Jesus was constantly reminding himself, even in times that he wasn't persecuted or suffering or challenged, he was constantly reminding himself saying, obeying my father will have a cost. How many of us think that way? My obedience to Jesus will have a cost. See, I don't know that we're really raised in that context or we think that way. When was the last time that you thought, hey, me being faithful to Jesus will have a cost and it may even bring suffering or persecution in my life? For the most part, we live in these at least my experience, and I think maybe a lot of our experience, is that following Jesus means that I won't have to face difficult things. <laughs> Obeying Jesus will result in, in me having a good life versus obeying Jesus is going to have a cost to it because we live in a fallen, sinful world that wants me to do anything but obey Jesus. And so if we're armed with, with, with the same way that Jesus thought, it means that we are, even when we are not in the midst of suffering or difficulty or persecution, that we are thinking that my obedience may result in some kind of cost for myself. I don't get to pick what it costs. I don't choose the environment that I'm born into. But I cannot be surprised that, that there, there, there very well might be, chances are really good that I will have to pay a significant cost to obey Jesus in my life. That's thinking like Jesus. And that's not a negative way of thinking because Jesus was characterized by joy he was characterized by hope, yet he thought in a way of saying, my obedience to my father will cost me. It'll cost me everything. I think that there are people in our world and throughout family of God history that do think this way. In fact, those who don't think this way are actually a minority in the kingdom of God because for the most part, following Jesus is costly for those who have followed him. We kind of live in a, in, a, in a little tiny place where following Jesus for the most part doesn't cost us much of anything. And I don't know that we're armed with the kind of thinking that Jesus had. Because when difficulties come and hit us, especially in the American church, we tend to give up pretty quickly or we just use the world's methods of war to fight back, which isn't how Jesus armed himself. Jesus armed himself with a way of thinking that he would 
submit and be faithful to the suffering that he endured versus the way I think, because I can work really hard to think my way out of suffering (laughs) in difficult circumstances. So he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What Peter's not saying right here is that you, can't, you are going to be perfect, and if you suffer, that means you'll never sin again. What he is saying is, is that having the mindset of Christ, thinking like Christ, being prepared, when suffering comes, you will not lose your faith, or you will not respond in anger or bitterness, or, or, or defeat, but you will have a better opportunity, and you will be more prepared to trust God with what he's doing and how he wants to use that in your life. And he says, he says, so as, in other words, this idea of ceased from sin, you've ceased living toward sin, that being where you are headed, because he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. We no longer have to live as slaves to sin because we are now free from that and we are able to follow the will of God. Doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly, but it does mean we can change our setting from I am moving toward sin to I am moving toward God's will. And every so often, as I move toward God's will, I do fail, but I get back up right away and continue to head towards God's will. And listen to what he says in verse three. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Kind of a weird statement, but what what he's saying, again, the use of the word Gentiles here is not an ethnic group, but it is people far from God. That's what it was describing there. He's writing to Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, so it, it doesn't mean that they're doing these things, but he's saying the way of life of those who are far from God, and, and here's basically what he's saying. He's saying, look, Whatever amount of time before you knew Christ that you indulged in life apart from Christ, that's enough time. Don't waste any more time living that way. Whether you lived that way for a long time before you, before you met Jesus or you lived that way for a short time, that's enough time. You've wasted enough time living that way and now you are able to live toward the will of God. You are capable of that now. So stop living that way. You've lived that way enough. So stop living that way. And and so so he says, says, uh, doing what the Gentiles wanna do, and he describes the way, the behavior and the context of of what what would characterize that. He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So he's describing the culture and the behavior of those who are apart from Christ there in the Roman Empire in that world. Because these activities he describes are activities that would commonly characterize the celebrations of the different gods all over the Roman Empire and from city to city. They would go to the temples that are built to the Roman and Greek gods and they would celebrate that way. They would go to Aphrodite's temple and they would participate in this orgy. And that was normal. 
That wasn't frowned upon. That wasn't seen culturally as inappropriate behavior. And that's how they would act. And it says, it says that uh, lawless idolatry. In other words, the, the things that that culture worshiped, they ran after that. Don't participate in those things. Now, the description, the characterization of how those who are far from Jesus live today would be different, maybe specifically, but the, but the, but the, but the understanding is the same. We're not called to live in this. I mean, some of the things actually cross over pretty well. I mean, we may not have temples that we go to to worship false gods, but we certainly worship ideologies and people who we have given authority in our lives. I mean, we, we've come to the place of worshiping certain media outlets. <laughs> we, we worship people, we worship all kinds of things. And so he says, don't waste any more time living this way because you have another option. You don't have to live that way. And, and, I, and I think this is, I feel like this next verse brings us all back to like, like childhood almost, or like high school. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. <laughs> it's almost a stereotypical thing of, why are you not going to this party? You're too good for us? Oh, oh, because you go to church, or oh, because you're, because why aren't you going to this with us? Because, oh, so you're too good for us. Oh, so, and then it just kind of turns into something and all that. Like, that's, that's basically what Peter's saying, is that, is that these, these people who are following Jesus in, that, in, in the first century, their neighbors are saying, we're going to the temple of Aphrodite, why don't you come with us? And they say, well, you know, we're not going to. And then they say to them, oh, so you're too good for, for the gods. Oh, that's right. You're an atheist. You only believe in one God. And you also, you know what else I heard about you? I heard that you're a cannibal too, and you sacrifice babies. And so they go on and on and just kind of keep going in the first century. That's literally what, what it, it ratcheted up to, to the point where it went beyond just, just talking and taunting one another to the point that it became physical persecution. It's interesting how society has changed like none in 2,000 years. It's the same thing. It's the same pressure. It's the same conversations. And he says, so, so they, they don't understand. They're surprised that you're not doing these things just like people are today. Or people should be. Like people should be surprised at the way we act because we don't act in the same way that the world does. We don't talk the same way that the world does. We don't fight each other with the same weapons that the world does. We have a completely different character when threatened than the world does. I mean, that's how Jesus calls us. Whether or not that is accurate or not is, is maybe a different question. But it says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about it. Keep obeying Jesus. 
keep thinking like Jesus and saying, you know what? I know that there will be a cost for my obedience to Jesus Christ. And so keep obeying Jesus because they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What is Jesus' role? What is Jesus described as here? He's described as judge. And he will judge everyone, whether you can't escape Jesus' judgment, whether you're alive or dead. (laughs) You can't escape Jesus' judgment from death. You can't escape it in life. Jesus will judge you and you will have to give an account for what you've done and what you've said. Even the things other people don't know about. So he says, don't worry about this. This isn't in your hands. Jesus is the judge and he will judge the living and the dead. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This kind of goes back to chapter 313 where it talked about Jesus while he was killed in the body, but he was brought, made alive by the spirit and he was made alive spiritually. And so what this is saying is, don't worry about when on the timeline you died. You could have died before Christ came and in the incarnation and gave his life and rose from the dead or before or after that. doesn't matter because Jesus is still the judge and he'll judge whether or not you had faith. And so even those in before Christ appearing who've died, Jesus is still their judge. And so even people who died before Jesus, because see, time isn't linear the way we experience for God. And so God can apply Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection to all people for all times, if they had faith. And so it's interesting that, uh, that there's descriptions of two types of people. There's, it says that Jesus is the judge, that's his role, he's the judge. But it's interesting how we spend a lot of time judging as Christians. Do you realize that judging is not our responsibility? What our responsibility is, is to, with all compassion and genuineness and urgency, warn people that Jesus does judge one day, finally. But we don't judge, (laughs) not our responsibility. We're not judges. We're priests. Priests, what do priests do? They represent Jesus to the rest of the world and they draw the rest of the world toward Jesus. They intercede for the world on the world's behalf. And, and, so, and so again, Jesus is the judge, we're not. And the other description is for the Gentiles, those who are far from God, what does it characterize them as maligning and slandering? They talk bad about other people. That's what they do. And so even just kind of looking at this, here's two things that we tend to spend a decent amount of time on that we need to spend zero time on. We need to not spend any time on judging others and talking bad about people. Because judgment is for Jesus and talking bad about people and maligning and slandering people is is for those far from Jesus, apart from God. And so if we were, if, if the church, if people who follow Jesus were to stop judging and stop maligning each other, then we suddenly have a lot of time on our hands, right? Like time has freed up. I have time, I have some margin now. 
So what do we do? And, and I, think that, I think that what's really cool about this is that Peter just makes it clear that we don't have to worry about judging because Jesus has that handled. We don't need to act like, we need to spend zero more time acting like the world. But what do we replace all that with? And I'll just give you those first and then we'll walk through them. Pray, love, and serve. That's what we replace judgment and, and negative talk with. Prayer, love, and service. He says in verse seven, he says, the end of all things that is, is at hand. In other words, we are in the final phase of God's redemptive plan for human history. Once Jesus ascended into heaven, that locked in the final phase of God's plan. So we're, we're in the final phase. We don't know how long the final phase is, but this is, there's no more phases. So the end of all things is at hand. And he says, okay, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, not just for the sake of being, having self-control and having a sober mind, but he says, for the sake of your prayers. Pray in a way that is self-controlled and sober-minded. Pray in a way that accurately, genuinely reflects the way Jesus prayed. Be about prayer. Don't worry about judgment. Don't worry about talking about what other people are doing. Pray. And you know, it takes self-control to pray when I would rather be talking about other people. And so that's one of the things that he says, I want you to replace this. This is what you're doing. You're to be about prayer, period. And so I think the question for us is, is how, how, really how much do we pray? In a given day, what are you focused on? What am I focused on? Do we pray primarily when we run into a wall? Or are we in a place of prayer? It's interesting, I was meeting with a friend. This is so awesome, because he's made some, like all of us, but he's made some bad choices in life. But he had this big thing coming up in his life, and he was super nervous about it. And he and I had just talked about Matthew chapter six and, and really the, the pathways that Jesus lays out for us to be intimate with him. And he said that, so the day before he went into this kind of big thing in his life, he said that he fasted for the first time all day. And I I'd kind of told him, I said, you know, if you've never fasted before, kind of ease into it. But, but he said, so he fasted all day. And he said, it was hard, but I did. And he said, he was overwhelmed the next day with what God did and how he was in the midst of this thing that he was super nervous about. But, but this is what got me is because he said, as he was telling me that story, he said, so I have a question. He said, do you think it's okay then for me to fast again, except not wanting anything from God, just being grateful? How many of us are in that space? How many of us just talk to God because we're thankful? We're just grateful. So first thing he says is pray. Second thing he says is love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, so the thing that probably trips some of us is love covers a multitude of sins. 
well, I, I, you know, sin is sin and, and it's wrong and people need to know, yes. Remember that we're not the judges though. We're to warn people of judgment. We're not the judges. But that statement, love covers a multitude of sins, actually comes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. In that chapter, I suggest you read it this week, it gives a contrast of a fool and a wise person. And in this particular thing that Peter quotes, it says, a fool holds grudges and a wise person loves because loves and they forgive. So it's the contrast of forgiveness and grudging. And so really what Peter is saying is love each other earnestly. The only way you can earnestly love someone is by forgiving them and letting those things go and saying, you know what, God, you are the judge and you will take care of this. I'm called to love. And so we say, okay, well, how do we really love other people? And, I, and, I, and it's great how he gives a specific example of what love looks like in the kingdom of God. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, some of you are very hospitable. You love having people over and you're just, you love it. I think you're weird the rest of us are like on a sliding scale of, yeah, I can handle people. This is good. I like having people over, but there's some boundaries to the point of no one ever has to come to my house as long as I live. Like that's the range, I think, of, of people. But you know what? Hospitality is a very significant theme in the Bible. And one of the ways that we can practically love other people is show hospitality. So this past summer, Sharon and I had, and we invited all of our neighbors in our, in our court to our house to, to come over for, for dinner. And uh, so we have, I mean, we have all kind of all ages. We've got, we've got a, the couple that lives next to us. They're both doctors. They don't have any kids. They're younger. And, and um, then our other neighbors, they're, they're, a little bit older than we are, and they're, they've got grown and, and far away kids. And, and then another, we've got a, a family, a uh, mom and a dad and two young boys. So we've got kind of a, a range in our, in our court. And so we, we invited everyone over because we really wanted to be hospitable and we wanted to, we've been really working to get to know our neighbors and engage them and love them genuinely. And so we had everyone over and, and so we're there at our house. And so one of the things that, that, if you've ever been to my house, you have children that you know about me. Um, here's the thing. We have a pool and we have a hot tub and um, I, I like to end the day in the hot tub. It's just, it makes me happy and I can process it. I can think and relax. And um, we have a rule at my house that all of our friends know who come to our house, they know that if you don't have a driver's license, you're not allowed in the hot tub. And that is a hard and fast rule, and we stand by that. Because uh, quite a while ago, the guy who does the chemicals in our pool was like, man, your hot tub's really messed up. There's things in there that shouldn't be there. And I was like, yep, kids. And so I was like, yep, that's not gonna happen anymore. Um, so I figure, this is my theory, is if you have a driver's license, probably you know where the bathroom is. So um, you'll keep that out of my hot tub. So there is a hard and fast rule. You cannot, you're not allowed in my pool unless you have a driver's license. And I've had, we have friends who their kids are, know that rule. And sometimes they'll say things like, 
oh man, I really wish I could go in the hot tub. I'm like, did you drive here? No. Um, or, or like one, one of our friends, their little kid fell in the hot tub and got out and was terrified like what I was gonna do. I was like, <laughs> nailed it. Um, so so, so that's, that's, that's a very serious rule in my house. So we're sitting in my backyard with our neighbors, most of whom don't know Jesus, and all of a sudden, at the same time, Sherry and I see one of our neighbors, their two little boys are in the hot tub. And Sherry looks at me with like fear in her eyes, like what's gonna happen? <laughs> and inside, in that moment, I suddenly was like, I now have joined the global church and I understand what suffering is. <laughs> like I was like this, and there was this dilemma inside of me that I had to deal with this. But I was like, okay, but God wants me to love my enemies <laughs> and bless those who persecute me. And so, and so like, it, this is so dumb, but I was there and I was like, this is so hard, but I just didn't do anything. And Sherry was really surprised and proud of me in that moment, which is a really low bar, but, but still, I, and, 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 and so for me, it was this moment of, you know what, this in a weird way in my privileged life, this is part of the cost of following Jesus. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I have a friend and uh, she, she made a search. She finally found the right stools for her counter. And um, so, so these are kind of special stools and, and, and they're, 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 not, they're, they're a light color. And um, this is a long time to, to find them. And um, one day being hospitable and having friends over and their friend's daughter was sitting on the stool with a bottle of red Gatorade. And um, she watched as, as the Gatorade was spilled on the stool and now has a red stain on her stool to remind her how Jesus wants her to be hospitable. Which I think is really a great biblical illustration. Literally, you have a red stain that reminds you to be like Jesus. <laughs> and I know those things sound simple and maybe even trite, but a lot of times we just don't even bother to show love to other people because we're so busy with other things. So we're called to pray and we're called to love in concrete ways. And then finally, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And serve. Whatever you can do, whatever you've been blessed with, however you've been wired, whatever abilities you have, use them to serve in the name and in the confidence of Jesus. While you're praying, while you're loving, serve. And, and so here's the thing. If you are praying and loving and serving, and if you have time left over, feel free to jump in to judging and maligning people. Because if you have time left after you've done all that, then I guess you deserve to do that, I guess. But honestly, realistically, 
If I'm really in prayer and loving and serving, I don't have time for that. It goes back to what Peter said. He says, you've spent enough time doing these other things. Here, we are in the final leg of this race. So, so pray, love, and serve. And do it in concrete ways. And isn't it interesting that prayer, love, and service, they're all connected. They all flow together. You know, the, the thing is, it's, it's difficult to do that though, isn't it? And I think part of that, there's, there's a struggle that I have that maybe even we have because of the environment and the way that we've grown up. When we were in London um, on that Saturday, two days after the Queen died, we went to the Tower of London and um, it's, a, it's a big old fortress. It's got all kinds of buildings and, and all kinds of stuff in there. And, and in the Tower of London, there's the Queen's personal guard called the Yeomen or the Beef Eaters. They're the guys who wear almost like the comic bookie outfits and the flat hats, not the big, tall, furry ones, but the flat ones. And these are all people who have served in the British military and they, now they are serving as the Queen's, the Sovereign's bodyguards. And so we were in the tower, we we're at the Tower of London and there's these tours that they give. And so this yeoman who's been in the Queen's service for like 20 years, uh, led, our, led this group, we were waiting for this tour, led his group over to St. John's Chapel, which is in the Tower of London. And he said, we're not doing the normal uh, tours today because we're in a time of grieving. And he said, in fact, I'm not doing any, I have this statement that I'm supposed to read and I haven't memorized it because it's the first time I've done it and I wanna read it to you and then I'll ask, uh, I can answer some questions, but that's our tour for today. But one of the things he said hit me really, really, really hard. Describing himself, he said, I live and I serve at the pleasure of her majesty. And then he caught himself and he corrected himself and said, well, at his majesty. It doesn't matter what he thinks about the sovereign that he serves. Doesn't matter if he agrees with her or him. Doesn't matter if he's been included in, in, in discussions of what the queen or the king values or the edicts that they've made. His life is to serve at the pleasure, what pleases her majesty. And what hit me in that moment was, can I even genuinely say that I live and I serve at the pleasure of King Jesus? If I were to say that, is that genuine? Is that really true of me? Can we say that? Can we say that without lying? Because I don't know that I am consistently focused in a place where I can say, I live and I serve at the pleasure of King Jesus. Whatever makes him happy, that's what I'm gonna do. And you know what is the pleasure of King Jesus? is that I would be self-controlled, 
and I would be praying, that I would continue to love and be hospitable, and that I would use everything that he's given me to serve because we're in the final phase of his seeking and saving the lost in this world. That's what I would be about if it was true that I serve and live for the pleasure of King Jesus. When Jesus was with his disciples that night in the upper room before they went to the garden, he, he said, I eagerly have anticipated sharing this meal with you. And, and I think what's interesting is Jesus was presenting, presenting himself to the disciples as a king like no other king in history. Jesus was presenting himself to the disciples as a king, number one, who doesn't just have subjects, but invites his subjects into his own family. And secondly, he's a king who lays his life down first for his subjects and his family. And so Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he, he looked at the disciples and said, held up this piece of bread, and he said, this is, this is my body that will be broken for you. And he said, I want you to take, and when you eat it, I want you to remember what I've done as you pray and as you love and as you serve. Let's take the bread together. And then Jesus took the cup, and he held it up, and he said, this is the blood of my covenant that I, as your king, shed for you to remind you of my love and how I lead and to remind you of how I think. Because obeying me is going to be costly. Maybe not your whole life, but there's gonna be a cost. So arm yourself, thinking the way I think. And he invited them to drink with him, so let's drink the cup. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. And after I pray, if you need prayer this morning, I invite you to pray. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if the people of God, the worst that people could say about us is they spend too much time praying and loving and serving. Maybe that's what the world can see in us as we say we serve and live at the pleasure of King Jesus. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for your demonstration of how to live, how to think. I pray that you would help us to lay down the things that are so easy for us to do, like talk about each other and judge and that you would give us the strength and the faithfulness 
to do the hard things of prayer and love and serving. God, thank you for being clear with us as to what gives you joy and gives you pleasure. May we become a people who serve and love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.